0: Standard Issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's com slash standard.
1: Standard Issue for all women.
2: Hello, Hannah here and welcome to Sunday Chops. This week I have a real treat for you, and it's an interview I did back in January with the actor, playwright and woman who takes none of your shit, Tracy Ann Oberman, who is about to go on a national tour with The Merchant of Venice 1936, in which she plays Shylock. We talk about all sorts of interesting stuff, including her family history, which includes some absolutely rock hard East End women, which probably explains why Tracy Ann has been able to withstand so much Twitter abuse and why she did this interview despite being in bed poorly. Yes, I did love her. Thanks for asking. Just time for me to say that if you don't already subscribe to us, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts, you run the risk of missing out on some great stuff we've got coming up. In Wednesday's podcast, I'm talking to the Dogs Trust about what to do if you're struggling to care for your pet during the cost of living crisis. And next week's chops is going to be the terribly moving story of Sophie Scholl and the White Rose. And in March, I'm going to be talking about the Titanic with those smashing people at Titanic Belfast. And that's just me. Mickey and Jen also have a lot planned, which sounds nefarious when I word it like that. But I'm pretty confident is isn't. Until next week, enjoy what's left of your weekend. Hi, Hannah. Here I am joined by the excellent Tracy Anne Oberman, actor and playwright, who a tiny bit excitingly is in her bedroom but not smoking. not full toast of London, Tracy, just half toast of London.
1: <laughs> so a sick toast of London. yes, yeah, sorry, you've got the visual here. I do look a little bit, Mrs. Purchase, but I am lying in my sick bed, sort of getting over flu without a fag on the go, but the hair's looking quite purchasey yeah. isn't it?
2: Oh, Toasted London is so excellent.
1: That was a series uh, that I was so happy to. You know, when you're part of a series, where you you would watch it even if you're not in it. That was that was right at the top of the tree. It's a it's a brilliant series.
2: First up, I was on Twitter for the first time yesterday in like three weeks because I took a break off it, and I saw that you were the subject of a no context Brits tweet about your oh, husband stop. eating a napkin. Well, and What the hell is that? I mean, that was a slow news day. That was that was a very <laughs> slow. So we were
1: on holiday about four years ago. We had gone to this really wanky... I, I like a Michelin-style restaurant. I mean, if you're going to spend money on food and you're on holiday, really nice. But we got there and it was like... Some Michelin star restaurants are you, you know will make you feel comfortable and you're in for an experience. This one was like going into a shrine and it was all very weirdly Game of Thrones. I can't explain it. It's sort of silent, you know, woman with no name. You know when she was the girl with no name that <laughs> yeah. series. And then these you know you couldn't really speak and everybody was whispering. And at that time I was very into um, a, a site on on Twitter called We Want Plates where where people would just post ridiculous pictures of how their food was being served in places like on leaves or on like you know wood that was like or on roadkill or you know it's just like give (laughs) us the food on a plate with a knife agreed so we we were kind of laughing about that and then um the shrine people sort of came along and it was a Japanese restaurant and they gave us all this tiny little thing in a tiny little shroud that looked like it was a piece of sushi and then after about 10 minutes, they came back all whispering in a kind of monk like silence, in monk like outfits. And they bought like a gourd of sort of sacred water that we thought was the sake. And they poured it over the tiny bit of, of sushi rice. And we thought, great. And to be fair, it wasn't just my husband. It was me as well. And we were so hungry at this point, because we'd been there for ages, that we all dived in and it turned out to be a napkin. <laughs> a tiny little napkin that they had poured water on. And it was like, oh, fuck
2: off. Just fuck I <laughs> know, I agree.
1: Like a prat. I posted on Twitter, like much against my highly intelligent, very super-duper husband. Uh He didn't even know because he's not on social media because he's one of the sane ones. I sort of <laughs> posted, we want plates going, oh, my God, look at this load of cack. Um, you know, there's, there's pretentious and then pretentious. My husband's just eating a napkin. And it went viral. It went all over the bloody world. It was a very slow news day on the 2nd <laughs> of July. 2019, and that turned into a major story. So that was nice to see that one resurrect itself again.
2: Yeah, well, it was back yesterday, out of nowhere. That story. I think I don't know what I would do in a place like that. I think it would be really difficult to keep it together. It would just feel. You couldn't speak
1: over a whisper as well. It was like you know, really reverential, like a shrine. Yeah.
2: Food
1: took ages to come. I mean, I'm all for. Listen, I've got friends with Michelin star chefs. I get the food. We get the food. It was the presentation was just so like. (laughs)
2: Shh. <laughs> yeah, like going to a library yeah so merchant of venice was originally talking a lockdown it was originally due to open in 2020 it's now opening yeah. at the watford palace theater on the 27th of february 2023 before transferring to manchester and then nationwide how far did you get with it the first time before it before yes. it shut down
1: well, really far. So it's um, it's it's The Merchant of Venice, 1936. So it actually is taking The Merchant of Venice and it's setting it in the east end of London in 1936 with a female Shylock based on my great grandma, Annie, who was an immigrant, came over from uh, Belarus during the pogroms over there, grew up on Cable Street. And um, with her, with my grandma and my great uncles, you know, stood up to Oswald Mosley and all that anti-Semitic fascists from the British Union of Fascists who came in on the Battle of Cable Street to stick it to the Jews and expected all the other working class communities to help him. And instead, it was Britain's very own civil rights moment, the great working class of the East End and also around the country on other marches, I've subsequently discovered, all pulled together to say, if you attack one, you attack all. Mm. And beat the crap out of them and actually Mosley, you know, the law was changed after that moment where you couldn't have a private army. He went down with his own private Blackshire army, uh, his own militia. So it was a really important point uh, and a really important moment in in our culture. So how far did we get? We got really far. We We had a five theatre tour. It was going on a five-theatre national tour, and then it was going to come into Wilton's, which is on Cable Street. Wilton's Musical, and it was all—it was all happening. we were about to go into rehearsals, and then lockdown happened.
2: Has it put more pressure on doing it now because you got that far again, or is it just really joyful to finally be getting out there and doing it?
1: Well, the, the theatres that we were doing it with, who were all co-producing, and it was—it was a really—it was—it was beautiful because each of those um, theatres. Regional theatres, we were going to do big community projects about um, immigration, about um, communities pulling together, about their own history of when the fascists came up and tried to infiltrate. So we had some really amazing things going on. You know, one of those theatres immediately went into receivership. Southampton doesn't exist anymore. And it's probably being turned into a car park as oh, we speak. So a lot of those other theatres got different artistic directors that everybody lost money. And so it looked like it wasn't going to happen at all because there was no money to put on a Shakespeare and there were new artistic directors. So I can't believe that we've, we, a it's come back, but it's come back bigger and better and stronger. I mean, the interest and love around this project has been Amazing. I've I've always said, and I said this in my activism, you know, kind of courage calls to courage everywhere, mm. and integrity calls to to integrity everywhere. And this production really comes from the heart. It's got a really big heart, and it's got a lot of sort of legacy work behind it of what I would love it to manage. And it seems to have attracted a lot of supporters and people on board. Yeah. So it's come back bigger and better and stronger.
2: Oh, that's great. And I have to say, I mean. A lady Shylock, a female. I say lady Shylock because there was a character called that in the Sopranos, and I can't get it out of my head. A female Shylock. She
1: called a lady Shylock. never watched the Sopranos? There we go.
2: Yeah, there was a lady Shylock in it. She was just a moneylender. But there you go. That's how. That's talking about Shylock. That's how you know that yeah, yeah. word has been used. I mean, this is a gender swap that I'm well on board with because
1: I've always hated the Merchant of Venice. It's a very difficult play, and if you're Jewish it's really difficult you know I remember the first time reading it at school we all had to read it out loud hearing people hooting with laughter at this you know at the mean miserly Jew rubbing his hands together going my ducats my daughter um, having his beard shaved off being this nasty money lender who only wanted a pound of flesh you know it was a really nasty experience and it's taught very very badly in schools it's not really given any context people don't understand why Jews were money lenders or what the history of Jews in this mm. country was? It was written at the time. It was, it was Shakespeare wrote it at the time of the Armada. The Jews had all been either imprisoned or expelled. There was one Jew left who was the Queen's doctor. He was called Lopez. The Queen Elizabeth loved him, but she was forced by public opinion to hang, draw, quarter, castrate, and torture him. And the idea of jeering at a Jew in the street was the backdrop to where the Jew of Malta and this play was written. Yeah. So there was a very anti-Semitic feeling in Britain at the time. So that's the context of, of of the writing of it. For me, I've, I've never seen a production that wholly gets over the anti semitism and wholly explains the play. And oh, hang on a minute, I'm just sitting up in my <laughs> sick bed. You got me on the subject now. And so now you're Oh, I've had a second win. So it's a very difficult play, and I wanted to reclaim it. And also, there's been lots of talk about should it be taught in schools at all? Or should it be performed at all? So I wanted to take it and turn it into something that really resonated and spoke to us today. Mm. I went to see the all-female Julius Caesar at the Donmar a few years ago, and it was brilliant, totally unlocked that play for me. And I've always wondered, what would happen if you took The Merchant of Venice, of this man, this money-lending man, and his single daughter, who he dominates and controls, and you turned it into a female single mother with a single female daughter. And those women who remind, you know, when I think of my great-grandmother in the East End of London, who, um, and my great-aunts, who all came out of Belarus from the Pale of Settlements, these women were as tough as nails. They'd survived pogroms. My great-grandmother watched her father being nearly beheaded, She herself was nearly raped. They lived in absolute poverty where they were forced to live as Jews in Belarus and in the pale of settlements where Tsar Nicholas made them live. And every so often, every few months, he'd tank up the Cossacks and he'd say, right, go in and kick the, you know, rip these little villages to Mm. shreds." show the boss here. So my great grandma, my, my bubba Annie, was brought up with that visceral violence. And she came to England on a boat at the age of 14 on her own to go and work. She was sort of sent out away from the pogroms to go and work in Auntie Yetta's factory in the East End. And on the boat, she met my great-grandfather, who had been, he was a communist, and he was also running away from the village next door. And they met on the boat, and he looked after her for three weeks on this third-class passage. And he said, when they got to Liverpool to the docks, and they went their separate ways, he said, I'm going to come and find you in the factory, and I'm going to marry you. And a year later, he walked into that factory in London. He found her, and they got married. And they lived on Cable Street, in those tenements, the slum tenements. Those women were tough. And in the First World War, a lot of those Russian immigrant men couldn't fight, didn't want to fight, and didn't want to get interned here. So they went back to Russia, and a lot of them never came back. He didn't come back for for many, many years. He got caught up in the Russian Revolution. But, you know, these were widows. I had another great aunt called Machine Gun Molly, who the men were so frightened of when it came to running those, you know, the schmutter business and dealing with them. And I had another one, another great um, aunt called Sarah Portugal, who wore a slash of red lipstick and I smoked a pipe. She was, you know, these women were tough. And everything that made you a survivor in Belarus, able to, you know, put a cow over your shoulders, walk through a freezing ice field, turn your little shtetl into a palace come Friday night, be able to haggle, make deals, be tough, were the very things in this country when they got to England were deemed, you know, unfeminine, repulsive and it's a, I think it's an immigrant matriarchal story. And I, I to me, it really worked having a shy look like that. Yeah. And then it changes the daughter, the relationship with the daughter, the daughter that she wants to be educated, the daughter that she wants to go out into the world, but don't marry them, don't trust them. And then I met Bridget Larmor, the director at the Tonic Awards, which is a brilliant all-female celebratory award thing. And We talked this all through, and we talked about setting it in 1930s during the time of Oswald Mosley. the aristocratic british union of fascists and we thought what an interesting thing to have this female shylock like my bubba in the east end surviving lending money under the counter being a money lender because that was all you could do Mm. you have these aristocratics these venetian aristocrats now set them in england as part of mosley's aristocratic acolyte followers i never realized until we did the research that oswald mosley married diana mitford at Goebbels' house with Hitler as a witness. And Hitler gave him the playbook of how to win votes and win hearts and minds by going in and being anti-Jewish. The Jewish entity, the untrustworthy, slippery international Jew. Yeah. So I want to seat myself in this kind of fascist, um, black shirt, Battle of Cable Street history. And thanks to the RSC and Watford, we've been able to workshop it many times. And it just works.
2: Yeah, I'm actually really excited to come and see it, I have to say. Recently, I made a decision. My dad really loved Shakespeare. I saw a lot of Shakespeare from a really young age. And I made a decision recently that I'd probably hit peak Shakespeare. I'd probably seen everything enough. And then I went to see Othello at the National. Oh, Um, how was it? Oh, it was brilliant. And I just thought, oh, you're talking about Hannah. There's always great new versions. I've seen some terrible, terrible Shakespeare. Me... I mean, <laughs> enough to make you
1: know that terrible, terrible Shakespeare over the years that puts you. It's like going to a bad gig, isn't it, or a bad stand-up? Yeah. It just it can actually ruin ruin your life. Yeah. Some of the worst impressions I've ever been in has come from seeing bad stand-up. It just triggers something. You did, didn't? You used to do stand-up at some point. Oh, I did for a while because I was writing. I wanted to learn how to write comedy, so I did a stand-up comedy course. Oh, you'll have seen some really bad
2: stand-up then in that case. Well, it I was know. it
1: was an amazing thing because it was back in the day, and there weren't that many other than sort of French and Saunders in this country. There just weren't that many female stand-ups, and Josie Lawrence, and that was about it. And I did this stand-up comedy course that was run out of the City Lits, but along with amazing people like Paul Foote was doing it and Simon Evans. There was like a whole coterie of people. And we had to go to the Meccano Club nearly every night to watch stand-up, to understand the mechanics of it. So, you know, you watch people like Eddie Izzard doing his tryout stuff and Paul Merton mm-hmm. and it was a great education in realizing i never wanted to be a stand up because it's very lonely <laughs> no so going back to what you're saying yes i've seen some terrible shakespeare's um and also i've seen some brilliant ones and when they're brilliant and they unlock a story they can be life changing and i you know i've kept this one we've worked very hard on keeping this one adapted so it's shorter than you'd expect and it's punchy and it's got a real heart and it's a bit sexy and um and our you know, our, our, our brilliant Portia, Hannah Morris is playing it like Diana Mitford, a better educated Diana Mitford. Yeah,
2: that's so interesting. That's why I know that story, because I'm a bit fascinated with the Mitford sisters.
1: Oh, let's talk about the bloody Mitfords, how the, the revisionism of the Mitfords mm. is quite amazing. You know, yeah. even last year when Emily Mortimer did her, her thing, there was a lovely, the Tatler did. Oh, the marvellous Mitford sisters. Well, let's yeah, not right. forget, you pretty much had an affair with Hitler. Um What's a face who loves Stalin? And it took until the 50s to turn around and go, yeah, maybe there was. I mean, there wasn't a dictator that they didn't like. Yeah, I mean, everyone loves Nancy, but that was a bloody weird household. And that family was personally responsible for allowing Unity to come back, having literally supping at the table of of Hitler, Mm -hmm. coming back and saying that she'd shot herself through the head and that nobody must ever speak to her because didn't uh, MI5 and the Home Office wanted to interview her? And they sort of put a blanket coverage and said, no, you will not be talking to Unity or Diana. Oh, i I just hate that family and, like, <laughs> yeah. and I'm sorry, I really do. I've got a real problem with them. you know that oh, they're so beautiful and they're also' oh, no, literary, like, yeah. they're a bunch of bloody fascists and sort yeah.
2: of as always, if they'd been working class women, they'd have been hammered, wouldn't they? but they weren't so hammered. Tell me how you deliver a monologue like Shylock's famous monologue. The, um And bring the, yourself to it, yes. The you know, mm. do we not bleed? How how do you tackle something like that that's makes it fresh?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Well, the whole you know, having a female saying all those Shylock lines is revelatory anyway. How that started was uh I worked with Jamie Lloyd and we did um we did a really lovely benefit for the Rohingya Muslims and there was an amazing load of actors that he'd pulled together, Olivia, Olivia Williams and uh, who else was there? Bertie Carvel and James Norton? I mean everybody, and they asked me to do they asked me to do that speech. the have not a Jew I speech, I think probably because Henry Goodman had dropped, out. <laughs> but anyway I, I was asked to do it, and it was a, an incredible day of working on on these speeches and with with a director like um Jamie and something happened that night in front of the audience when I got up to do it i somehow it had seeped into my consciousness, so I knew it really well. I didn't even have to read it off the book. And it was just being able to say to an audience, you know, why do you hate me? You hate me because I'm a Jew. You know, mm-hmm. nothing more than I'm a Jew. And then going into hath not a Jew eyes, hath not a Jew, you know, feelings, emotions. Do I not bleed when you cut me? Do I not t- laugh when you tickle me? And, you know, if I'm human like you. And that speech just, you could have heard a pin drop. And I remember at the end of the night, Jamie coming up to me and going wow, that really was incredible. I think because it came from my heart and I connected to it because it wasn't performed with any emotion other than a a, a very simple truth. There's something he said really helped me have the confidence to take this project forward, and he said it it really, really worked, and it was very gripping, and it was very moving, and it was very profound for any minority. Mm. So I think finding a way of saying all of these lines... Because I keep it in, I'm keeping it in the head of my great-grandmother and in the mouth of my great-grandmother's experience of saying, you know, I've been persecuted. I was persecuted all my life in Russia and I came here and I called this country the Golden Medina. And now I'm having to have people smashing my windows on Cable Street and calling me Filthy Jew and waking up and peeling posters off my window and being spat on in the street. This is unacceptable. So it comes from a place of truth. My journey of sort of my identity and work meaning something as you know, I I play Golder in Fidder on the Roof down in Chichester. That was a real turning point for me where I was like, this cannot just be a musical, you know, a pogrom and a song, a lovely little song. You know, this has to mean something. And we brought in a brilliant uh, historian and we talked all about what it was like growing up in those settles. And it made me go into my family research. That then moved me on to The Merchant of Venice, And then again, in 1962 with Ridley Road, I knew a lot of people that had been in the 62 group that uh, that were also part of the family and people that they'd grown up with. And what I found so depressing was that Mosley set up the British Union of Fascists in the 30s. Uh, and there was so much anti-Semitism. And then there was a huge anti-Semitism in the 40s. Mm. And then straight after the war as well, which is amazing post-Holocaust. And then to think that Mosley and his little acolyte Colin Jordan could start it all over again in 62 with the British Union of Fascists marching through the East End, burning down synagogues, killing a young boy, and that the authorities were not there to protect them and really didn't care that much. That's where I think Sarah took that story and really shocked people by showing them that not much had changed in a post holocaust world.
2: Yeah, well, talking of that and talking of, you know, do we not bleed... Can we talk about Twitter? If I was going to write a list of 10 women who get a lot of shit on Twitter, you would definitely be in in that list, Tracy. You put up with an extreme amount of unnecessary abuse. Or you don't put up with it, you are subjected to an extreme amount of unnecessary abuse. What is that actually like to live through?
1: Um, I stood up and put my head above the parapet and went, um, you know, the left, which is my party uh, that considers itself um, anti-racist and doesn't have a racist bone in its body is posting and liking and aligning itself with some really nasty anti-Semitic rhetoric. Yeah. You know, when you turn up at Astonbury and there's a massive poster that says the evils of the world all go back to the Rothschilds and has a poster, has a map. And you're thinking, sorry, is this the 30s? You know, when you look at murals that are liked or not liked that look straight out of De Stürmer, um, Nazi propaganda stuff, when you're looking at things on Twitter that were being posted and unchallenged, that were really deeply anti-Semitic tropes that went right the way back to the Middle Ages, you know, blood libel stuff. And then you'd point it out and go, you know, that is a bit anti-Semitic. And then people would turn around and go, that's rubbish. We are of the left. The left can't possibly be anti-Semitic. And then you got called a right-wing fascist, baby murdering, you know, all the other horrors. And it was nasty. But the more that people wanted to shut me up, the more I sort of stood firm and the more that I could see that the horrible abuse that I was getting on my own Twitter timeline of people saying things to me, you know, terrible things to me. I remember sitting in the car once and seeing that an artist, ever somebody or other who had spray painted the Warsaw Ghetto Wall with Free Gaza. Now, you can spray free gas or anywhere, but don't spray it on the Warsaw Ghetto Wall, which is the last remaining wall. It's basically an open grave of, of my family and millions of other people's families. You know, my family died in the Warsaw Ghetto and Auschwitz. And she'd been invited by Momentum to come and talk at the Labour Party conference. And it really upset me that somebody who effectively spray painted... An open grave was being given a legitimate platform, and uh, I put something on Twitter and said, "You know, if somebody spray painted your family's grave, I'd, you know, you'd be upset if they had been invited to speak at um, at, at a conference." You're and right. the abuse I got back was, I have, I mean, that was that was the turning point. I mean, it was beyond belief. You know, every member of your family deserve to die to atone for one Palestinian baby. The numbers don't add up. The holler hoax. If every member of your family died in the Holocaust, why are you still here? We don't believe you. You're a liar. You don't want to pay taxes. You Jewish Zionist shill and all the other stuff. On and on and on.
2: From legitimate people, from from Labour Council, that's what that I think. That's the point worth making here. Where well, you're not talking about the usual suspects, and I put that in quotes. No, you're not and, talking and about right wing people throwing that. No, at and you.
1: this is the thing. You know where you are with right. We, we know, with right. Yeah. The right. Yeah, are, the right yeah. are you know they're growing, and the and we can see in the world today that the all right right and their and their racism and anti semitism and homophobia is a, is terrifying, and that is a huge danger. But there is also a real problem on the alt left, mm. and it needs to look at itself. I got told, yeah, Auschwitz was bad, but Gaza's worse. And I remember, you know, I'm sure I wrote back and said, I'm sure Gaza is terrible, but this is what the Warsaw Ghetto was. And I posted some pictures of a huge pile of bodies, naked bodies, starved, loads of babies lying in the street, dying of typhoid, et cetera, et cetera. And I just got the most incredible abuse. And I just said, I'm sitting in the car, having dropped my kid at school and I'm crying at what's been happening. And that's when this whole wave started that's when people like Tom Watson started reaching out to me, TV companies. It, it, that's when the conversation really began. And the more those people posted abuse to me, the more it shone a light on the nastier elements yeah. of the Labour Party at that time and what needed to be rigid So as horrible as it was, the more firm I stood, the more it shone a light on it and people could really see it.
2: Yeah, well done. And And you'll know this because you are a woman, that it's exactly the same if you point out the misogyny that exists in the hard left. Oh my god. You just get you just get told, Well look uh, at the Tories. You can in the red flag, dear. If you look answer is if you look at the Tories, they have at least had three women now I mean, be the Prime Minister. Totally. There is a really nasty
1: intersectionality of, this is turning into a fun podcast, isn't it? There's a really <laughs> nasty intersectionality of uh, misogyny and racism and definitely anti-Semitism. And I, I noticed that, you know, people like David Badil or David Schneider would post exactly the same point that I was making or later on Rachel Riley was making. But the visceral, sexual, personal, misogynistic abuse that I would get back, which David would never get, mm. was, was a shocker and they particularly as an actress and particularly um as a as a woman they thought that my main reason for living was to be liked and it was like i don't give a fuck about whether you like me or not i just need to puncture this battlefield's echo chamber They could not get over that. They couldn't frighten us off Twitter. And there was quite a few of us, Luciana Burge and myself, Rachel, Mm -hmm. uh, Joan Ryan, you know, the misogyny was repulsive, but we stood firm.
2: Yeah, well done. Now, see, I I know you don't give a fuck because I just before I did did this, I I read a quickly. I read like a 20 question style interview you did with The Guardian a few years ago. And loads of the questions and I hadn't really thought about it until I read your answers. Loads of the questions were actually quite negative. They asked you what your guilty pleasure was. They asked you what your biggest regret was. They asked you what you most disliked about your appearance. And your answer to nearly all of them was, I don't feel guilty. I don't regret anything. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> yeah, that's so the right attitude. Is that, is that an attitude that comes with age, do you think?
1: Yeah, I definitely think so. And also when you have a daughter, you know, I've got a daughter and I think uh, you suddenly see the responsibility of, of you've got to light like yourself. You've got to light like your own body. We are, you know, we are what we are. And the, all these um, beauty standards that are totally unrealistic and, uh, and unobtainable and through social media as well, they've got to learn it from home. Mm. We are all, you know, everybody's beautiful. You've just got to own you. It all comes from the inside anyway. Some yeah. of the most... You know, and the beauty standard changes all the time. So uh, I really do believe you can't regret anything. You lived your life the way you were meant to leave it, to live it. And it is, and you can't, you just can't regret it. It is what it is.
2: And everything teaches you a lesson.
1: What was the other thing? Guilty, no, now, don't feel guilty about anything.
2: And that is age. I've got one more question for you. So I know you've got this coming up and this will be all that's on your mind. But if you got anything in the bag that you filmed that might be coming out Oh my out soon? God.
1: Yes, because I'm not only doing this. I'm about to open in the West End in Noises Off, the Michael Frayn farce as well.
2: Did you not know that? I did not know that. I can't believe you found time to talk to me, all things considered then.
1: We did a tour. um, It's Felicity Kendall and Matthew Kelly and Alex Hanson, myself, Joe Mills. It's an amazing cast and we did a tour of it and um, it's the 40-year anniversary directed by Lindsay Posner and it's coming into the Phoenix in the West End next week. And um, at the same time as that, I've got a, I'm opening that, and then I'm in that for a month. And at the same time as that's going on, I'm rehearsing the Merchant of Venice.
2: That's crazy.
1: And as main time, at the same time as that's going on, I'm also writing my next big radio play for Radio Four because I write plays as well. I know. Can you
2: tell me I what it's about, about? Is that is it May soon? West actually?
1: Wow. So now she is a woman and a half. Not I'm too totally. Right. <laughs> I mean, I could come on and talk to you about her, and to, let's do that. For that the would be time. amazing. Yes, she uh, she was the one. I mean, she she was the one. She is the icon. Before there was a Madonna or a Miley Cyrus naked on a wrecking ball or a RuPaul or anyone, yeah, May West was the one that smashed every single glass ceiling and took on the sensors. And actually, without realizing it, I think I've modelled... You know, she's she was an icon before I even realized she was an icon yeah, that's because she basically isn't
2: it. Yeah, I don't care. I'm just going to keep doing my work. Yeah. She's a big drinker, wasn't she, Mae West? Or am well, I thinking of someone else?
1: No, she would want you to think her, her public PR image of what she knew would sell and who she was as a real person were very different. Yeah, that's true.
2: Yeah, of course. This has been wonderful. I've had a lovely time chatting to you and especially, like, since you've made the efforts since <laughs> you didn't feel great. I'm sorry if I talked too much. I no, 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 you, no, you to- absolutely didn't. It's been fantastic. <laughs>
1: and an issue for all women.